Welcome back. Today we're beginning a segment on conflicts of interest. This is going to take the next four weeks of our course because conflicts of interest is probably the most complicated concept in the area of legal ethics. The rules are complicated. The, they can tend to be very fact-intensive and so they can require a lot of, of analysis and in many situations they can be if the lawyer is, finds themselves in a conflict of interest, it can be difficult to get out of it, to, ext to extricate yourself from that kind of a conflict. So we're going to start off by talking about just the idea, the, con the concept of conflict of interest, and then starting off with Rule 1.7, the basic definition of conflict of interest involving current clients, and then the idea of imputation of conflicts, which is the idea, which is the fact that a lawyer's conflicts of interest in many situations are transferred to the entire firm so that if one lawyer has a conflict, the entire law firm may have a conflict as well. So let's start off with the idea of a conflict of interest. It's a term that, uh, that is applied in all kinds of areas. It can be in business, it can be in uh, political positions, and so on. And it could, an ex could example could be like a... Uh, a physician who accepts gifts and uh, expensive dinners from a pharmaceutical sales rep in return for the physician prescribing those drugs. It could also be a politician accepting campaign contributions in return for some kind of uh, benefits to the contributor at a later time. So in those sorts of situations, I think in the most common examples of conflict of interest, I think there's a, an element, at least a slight element of corruption, or at least of crooked, uh, crooked dealing. A hint that somebody is neglecting a duty to others, or maybe even taking advantage of a position that they hold to serve their self-interest. In some lawyer conflict of interest situations, there can be a similar element of self-interest, but that doesn't have to be the case. Lawyers can find themselves in a serious conflict of interest situation even when they are not motivated by self-interest. So don't be misled by the idea that a conflict of interest is unimportant or can be ignored if the lawyer is not personally benefiting at the expense of a client. It's not about whether the lawyer is benefiting, it's whether either of any of the clients is being harmed by the conflict. So. There are, there are various degrees of conflict of interest. So I'm going to talk about the idea of a conflict of interest problem, which is where there is the potential of a conflict that may cause problems down the road, that may have some effect on the lawyer's ability to represent one or more clients. So a problem, a conflict of interest problem arises when a lawyer's ability to meet their obligations to one client may be impeded by the lawyer's duty to meet their obligations to another client, to a former client, or to another person. So when a, a, a conflict of interest problem exists, there may or may not be an actual conflict of interest within the terms of the rules. And if there is a conflict of interest, it may or may not be resolvable. But when a, when a conflict of interest problem presents itself, you have to examine it closely and see what your obligations and your options are. Think about the duties that a lawyer owes each client. 
Uh, and we've talked about these primary duties in the first part of the course. Rule 1.1, the duty of competence. Rule 1.2, there's a duty of, of loyalty and a duty to take direction from the client. Remember, the client determines the objectives of the representation. There's a duty of diligence under Rule 1.3. Under 1.4, the lawyer has a duty to communicate, to inform, and to consult with the client. And finally, Rule 1.6, the lawyer has the duty to preserve client confidences. So a conflict of interest within the legal definition, within the legal ethics definition, arises when your ability to meet any one of these obligations to one client is impeded or limited by your duty to meet similar obligations to another client. Rule 1.7a. So there are two kinds of concurrent conflict of interest, and that means we're talking here about a conflict involving two possible clients at the same time, two clients that you're representing at the same time. Rule 1.7a, except as provided in paragraph B and the exceptions below, a lawyer shall not represent a client if the representation involves a concurrent conflict of interest. So there are two kinds of concurrent conflict of interest. The first one, where the representation of one client will be directly adverse to another client, and the second one, where there is a significant risk that the representation of one or more clients will be materially limited by the lawyer's responsibilities to another client, a former client, or a third person, or even by a personal interest of the lawyer. In either case, resolving a conflict of interest problem requires a lawyer to do this analysis. First of all, clearly identify the client or clients. Second, determine whether there is a conflict of interest, whether a conflict of interest exists. Third, decide whether the conflict is consentable. In other words, whether it may be undertaken without, despite the existence of a conflict, uh, if the, client, the lawyer is able to obtain informed consent. And then finally, if it is, if informed consent is possible, it must be obtained from each of the clients, each affected client, and confirmed in writing. Conflicts of interest can arise at different points in a representation. If a representation has not yet begun, but a potential new client would create a conflict of interest with another current client or with a former client, the lawyer may not accept that new representation unless all effective all affected clients give informed consent confirmed in writing. So in that case, where a potential new client comes in and accepting that representation would create a conflict, then the lawyer may not accept that representation. They have to decline that representation. However, however a conflict can also arise after the representation has begun. For example, a, a corporation might acquire as a subsidiary a business that you sued in a different uh, uh, representation previously. So you would be in the position of at one of now um, representing a client that you sued against in a previous matter. So in that case, if the conflict arises after the representation has begun, usually the lawyer has to withdraw from the representation, again, unless the, the lawyer can obtain informed consent from all affected clients, again, confirmed in writing. That can be hard. They're not always going to be willing to give informed consent. So we've said that there are two different kinds of conflict of interest, direct adversity and material limitation adversity. Uh, let's start with direct adversity. 
Comment 6 talks about direct adversity. The duty of loyalty means that a lawyer may not act as an advocate in one matter against the person the lawyer represents in some other matter, even when the matters are wholly unrelated. Why is that? Because a client is entitled to loyalty from their lawyer. When a lawyer who is representing a client turns around and represents someone else against that client, even if it's a completely unrelated matter, this can damage the trust essential to a lawyer-client relationship. Directly adverse conflict can arise even in less uh, uh, stark circumstances. For example, when a lawyer is required to cross-examine a client who appears as a witness in a lawsuit involving another client. In that situation, when you're, trying to, when you're in, the, in the position of having to cross-examine a witness who you represent in another matter, that again is damaging to the lawyer-client relationship. Because what happens when you're trying to cross-examine a, a witness? You're trying to show that the witness is unreliable at best, if not dishonest. Again, this can destroy the trust between the client and the lawyer. On the other hand, simultaneous representation in unrelated matters of clients whose interests are only economically adverse, such as competing businesses in unrelated litigation, does not ordinarily create a conflict of interest and thus generally does not require consent. For example, a conflict of interest as understood in the model rules usually does not arise simply from the fact that a lawyer may represent clients who are in economic competition with each other. If it did, that would mean that insurance that insurance defense firm could only ever represent one insurance company because the others would be in competition with them. Or a real estate lawyer could only ever represent one real estate company because the others, again, might be in competition with uh, an economic competition with your client. Directly adverse conflicts can also arise in transactions, in transactional matters. For example, if a lawyer is asked to represent the seller of a business in negotiations for the buyer who's also represented by the lawyer in a different transaction, right, in a completely unrelated matter. The lawyer could not undertake the representation without the informed consent of each client because, again, you're putting the, you're raising doubts in the client's mind about the lawyer's loyalty. How can you represent me against that other party when you're rep when you're defending them, representing them in some other matter, who are you going to be more lo more loyal to? The second type of conflict of interest is called a material limitation conflict. This is uh, Roman 1.7a2. So again, a lawyer may not accept a representation or must withdraw from a representation if there is a significant risk that the representation of one or more clients will be materially limited by the lawyer's responsibilities to another client, a former client or third person, or a personal interest of the lawyer. So comment 8 tells us, even where there is no direct adverseness, a conflict of interest exists if there is a significant risk that a lawyer's ability to consider, recommend, or carry out an appropriate course of action for the client will be materially limited as a result of the lawyer's other responsibilities or interests. So again, the idea is that a material limitation conflict may, may limit the lawyer's ability to consider, recommend, or carry out an appropriate course of action for a client because of their other responsibilities to other clients. 
Commonly, this means that the conflict involves the duties of diligence and confidentiality. Here's an illustration. The lawyer may have gained information from the representation of client A. That, in, that information might be useful in the lawyer's representation of client B, but disclosure would be to the detriment of client A, in, uh, such that representing client B diligently would require the lawyer to use that information from client A. However, the lawyer may not disclose that information from client A to client B because it is protected by confidentiality. So here there is a conflict between the duty of diligence to one client and the duty of confidentiality to the other client. It, this is the sort of situation where the conflict forecloses alternatives that would otherwise be available to the client. Now, this is why I said that there are there's a difference between a conflict of interest problem and the existence of an actual conflict of interest. Comment 8 goes on to tell us that the mere possibility of subsequent harm does not itself require disclosure and consent, so the lawyer has to exercise some judgment. The questions are the likelihood that a difference in interest will eventuate, and if it does, whether that difference will materially interfere with the lawyer's independent professional judgment in considering alternatives or for close courses of action that reasonably should be pursued on behalf of the client. We'll talk about Rule 1.9, Former Client Conflicts, on March 15th. Another type of conflict of interest can involve, can bring the client's interest in conflict with some personal interest of the lawyer. And there can be all kinds of personal interests. Uh, for example, it could be uh, that the client, the lawyer might be related to someone on the other on the other side or might be related to a lawyer on the other side or something like that. Um, it could be a financial interest. So it's going to vary depending on, on the, the type of situation. Uh, a common situation in comment 11, when lawyers representing different clients in the same matter or in substantially related matters, which we'll talk about later, you can just put aside substantially related, file that away in your brain. So when lawyers representing different clients in the same matter are closely related by blood or marriage, there may be a significant risk that client confidences will be revealed and that the lawyer's family relationship will interfere with both loyalty and independent professional judgment. Lawyers might talk to their family. Difference is that this disqualification, if it's a disqualification arising from a close family relationship, it's applied only to that individual lawyer and does not get imputed to other members of the firm, which means that another member of the, of the lawyer's firm can take over the representation. Informed consent. In some instances, a lawyer may proceed, even if there is a conflict of interest, if they get the informed consent of the clients. But there are a number of caveats to what that sort of informed consent requires. First of all, the lawyer must reasonably believe that they will be able to provide competent and diligent representation to each affected client. Second, the representation may not be prohibited by law. Third, the representation may not involve the assertion of a claim by one client against another client represented by the lawyer in the same litigation or other proceeding before a tribunal. That's a lot of words. We'll come back to, the, to each one of these. And then finally, each affected client has to give informed consent confirmed in writing. So let's go back over each one of these four elements. First, we apply a re an objective standard. The lawyer has to reasonably believe 
that they will be able to provide competent and diligent representation to each affected client. The test really is whether a reasonable lawyer would believe that each client would receive the same level of competent and diligent representation as they would if each client had their own lawyer. The comment, uh, the language in the comment is uh, the question, to ask the question whether the interests of the client will be of the clients will be adequately protected if the clients are permitted to give their informed consent to the representation burdened by a conflict of interest. Thus, under this paragraph, representation is prohibited if, in the circumstances, the lawyer cannot reasonably conclude that they could provide competent and diligent representation to each affected client. And important to remember here, it's not a matter of whether you, as an individual, are especially resistant to temptation, or especially diligent, or especially fair. It's a matter of whether a reasonable lawyer, in the circumstances, would believe that any lawyer could provide competent and diligent representation to each of the clients. So it's not a matter of your individual probity or honesty or virtue. Uh, section two, there are certain types of representation that may be prohibited by law. And again, this is going to vary from one state to another, from one jurisdiction to another. For example, in some states, uh, the substantive law might provide that the lawyer, uh, one lawyer may not represent more than one defendant in a capital case, even if both clients consent. And there are certain federal statutes that prohibit uh, representation by a former government lawyer, even despite, again, the, the informed consent of the former client. And finally, in some states, there's case law that limits the ability of a, government, of a governmental client, such as a city or municipality, to consent to a conflict of interest. Number three, okay, this is very simple in fact. This means that um, a lawyer may not represent both Smith and Jones in the case of Smith and Jones. A lawyer can't represent both parties in litigation, uh, both parties on, the si on each side of the versus. Comment 17 explains these conflicts are non-consentable because of the institutional interest, the, the, the interest of the justice system in vigorous development of each client's position when the clients are aligned directly against each other in the same litigation or other proceeding before a tribunal. So litigation is based on the idea that each party will be able to argue their position and, or defend their position vigorously. And if you have the same lawyer representing both sides, that seems uh, quite unlikely. Is a little side note perhaps, but this does not, this paragraph does not preclude a lawyer representing multiple parties to a mediation. Okay, so if two parties decide to mediate rather than to litigate, maybe a lawyer could represent both parties under this provision, but it would probably still be prohibited uh, under B1 because a lawyer could not reasonably believe they could represent both parties in mediation fairly. And then finally, each, uh, each affected client must give informed consent confirmed in writing. The writing does not have to be signed by the client. It merely has to be transmitted to the client. It could be something written by uh, the client, sort of a memo to the, or a letter to the lawyer saying, this is what I understand, or even better, the lawyer records and, and uh, writes and sends to the client uh, a letter confirming their oral consent, what they have agreed to. Uh, and if it, 
it should be done at the time that the uh, client gives the informed consent. And there might be different circumstances that, that might make it necessary to reach that consent later because there, there might be uh, an emergency of some sort. So at least the client has, the lawyer has to give the writing to the client uh, in a reasonable time thereafter. Like any consent, a client who has given consent may revoke that consent and in fact can fire the lawyer at any time. If, if circumstances change and the client decides to revoke consent, they can do so. The question then will arise whether because one client has revoked consent, does that mean the lawyer has to withdraw from all the representations or from both or, or however many representation, however many clients they're representing? Again, that's going to depend on the circumstances. You're going to need to look at the nature of the, of the conflict, whether the client revoked consent because of a material change in circumstances that would affect everyone, uh, what would be the reasonable expectations of the other client, and would there be some sort of material detriment to the other clients if the lawyer does not withdraw. Now there are certain types of conflicts that are called non-consentable. For example, uh, multiple parties in a, a negotiation may be extremely antagonistic to each other, or they may have uh, generally aligned interests. So it's going to vary. So that's going to determine whether the clients can consent. If their interests are, in fact, fundamentally antagonistic to each other, the lawyer may not consent because they, they cannot agree. On the other hand, if the clients are, are generally aligned in interest with maybe some minor differences in viewpoint, uh, then perhaps the in general the co the conflict would be consentable. Otherwise, we want to allow clients some flexibility. We don't want to prohibit them from conflict from consenting to a conflicted representation, uh, because that would require each party to obtain separate representation, which could be expensive, uh, and could even lead to litigation where a settlement might be more feasible. Um, if the costs are kept down. So given these and relevant other relevant factors, the clients may prefer, even if there is a conflict, the clients may still prefer that the lawyer act for all of them. So the concept of non-consentability is really imposing a sort of paternalistic kind of protection on the clients who, even if they are given in, uh, full information and an opportunity to consent, may not be in a position to to still really give consent. Let's turn to Rule 1.10, Imputation of Conflicts of Interest. All right. Again, a fairly simple rule. It's really, the, uh, well, let's, let's go through it. While lawyers are associated in a firm, none of them shall knowingly represent a, represent a client when any one of them practicing alone would be prohibited from doing so by Rules 1.7 on current conflicts or 1.9 on former client conflicts. So when lawyers are associated in a firm, none of them may represent a client when any one of them is prohibited from representing a client because of a conflict of interest, unless the prohibition is based on a personal interest of the disqualified lawyer and does not present a significant risk of materially limiting the representation of the client by the remaining lawyers in the client in the firm. So what does this mean? First of all, imputation is a uh, bright line rule. It's one of the few bright line rules in uh, the model rules. 
if a lawyer if a lawyer in a firm has a conflict of interest because of rule 1.7 or rule 1.9 or 1.8 then that conflict is imputed to the entire firm the entire firm is treated as though it's, it's one lawyer there are a couple of ways of analyzing this rule uh, one analysis is that uh, under this rule uh, a firm is essentially one lawyer for the purposes of the rules governing loyalty to the client so uh, or another way of analyzing it is that each lawyer is vicariously bound by the obligation of loyalty owed by each lawyer with whom it within the firm what this means is that if one lawyer has a conflict the entire firm has a conflict and what that means is that it doesn't matter how big the firm is how many offices they have this is like I said a bright line black letter rule if a lawyer in a in an office of the firm in New York has a conflict the offices of the firm in Dubai have the same conflict and they and they would be barred from the representation uh, that may seem like a, an extreme rule um, but again it has the benefit of being easy to apply there's not a lot of, of, of fuzziness in that in that rule and the way it's applied there is some flexibility when the conflict arises from a personal interest of the lawyer for example strong political beliefs uh, imagine a firm uh, that is being asked to take on the uh, defense of some of the uh, protesters uh, insurrectionists on January 6th in uh, DC there might be a lawyer who has a strong political belief in opposition to those protesters uh, that would prevent them from being able to defend that lawyer or that would prevent them from being able to defend that client however if there are other lawyers in the firm who do not who are not as uh, influenced by that sort of uh, subjective belief they could do it so the the fact that one lawyer has a particularly strong belief that would affect their ability to represent the client does not mean that other lawyers in the firm could not do it so that lawyer that firm would not be disqualified on the other hand if the personal interest was of a, a financial nature say an opposing party in a case a corporation or a business of some sort were owned by a lawyer in the firm then others in the firm might be limited in pursuing the matter because of their loyalty to that lawyer in that kind of a case then the the disqualification would be imputed to all others members of the firm finally for today rule 1.8 talks about duties to a prospective client not every meeting with a potential client turns into a full-blown lawyer-client representation. Sometimes a person might consult with a lawyer and decide not to hire that lawyer. So, 1.18a, a person who consults with a lawyer about the possibility of forming a lawyer-client relationship with respect to a matter is a prospective client. So we have two different kinds. Actually, there are three different kinds of clients as, as we go through this. There is a current client, there is a prospective client, and there is a former client. And the rules are different for all three of those. Okay, so someone who consults with a, a lawyer but doesn't hire them or does not proceed to go into a lawyer-client uh, engagement is considered a prospective client. So even when no client-lawyer relationship ensues, 
a lawyer who has learned information from a prospective client shall not use or reveal that information with certain exceptions, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks. Okay, so what that means essentially that is that a lawyer owes a, a wide range of obligations and duties to a client. We've talked about those already. That's what the first half, uh, the first five weeks of the course were primarily about. However, with a prospective client, the duty is essentially limited to uh, the duty of confidentiality. If the lawyer has learned information from a prospective client, they have to keep it confidential. Qu uh, questions may arise as to when a, an interaction between a lawyer and a potential client constitutes consultation. And again, that depends on the circumstances. For example, uh, issues have come up with uh, potential clients, uh, with individuals responding to a law firm website or to a law firm's advertising. Uh, comment 2 says a consultation is likely to have occurred if a lawyer, either in person or through the lawyer's advertising, again in, in, in a, a website or whatever, if the lawyer specifically requests or invites the sub submission of information about a, rep a potential representation. So lawyer's website, lawyer's advertising says, call me if you've, if you've been hurt in a car, call me. And, but if that's likely to turn into a consultation, if the request from the lawyer and the advertising asks for information, tell me about your, your problem. I've seen websites like that where the, the law firm will have a website and say, name, you know, phone number, brief description of your issue, right? That's a bad idea. Uh, that can result in a, uh, uh, in an obligation to a prospective client, even if the lawyer does not accept representation. So you need to have uh, careful uh, disclaimers on a website or an advertising like that. Comment says that there should be clear and reasonable, understandable warnings and cautionary statements that limit the lawyer's obligations. So if a lawyer does have that kind of advertising, something that says, um, I can help you, send me your information and we will get back to you, uh, and a person does in fact provide that information, they have become a prospective client, even if the lawyer eventually turns down the representation. On the other hand, a consultation does not occur if a person merely provides information to a lawyer in response to more general advertising. So um, a more uh, plain vanilla kind of website that says, uh, for, more, for, for more information, uh, call or uh, leave your name and, and uh, phone number and we will call you back. Something like that does not constitute consultation. And finally, um, there are situations where this is called sometimes a, a beauty contest, maybe a, a corporation or a business of some sort, or maybe just a, 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 an individual client who has the means to do this sort of thing, wants to meet with a number of lawyers and maybe essentially take bids, decide which lawyer or which law firm is the best one to take their case. Sometimes that means, though, that someone is trying to bring in as many lawyers as they can, bring in all the good lawyers, uh, say all the good divorce attorneys in town, and 
share enough information with that with those firms that they will then be disqualified from representing the other side. Comment two here says that 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 won't work. A person who communicates with a lawyer for the purpose of disqualifying the lawyer is not a prospective client, so they would not be that attempt to disqualify qualify good lawyers would not work. Okay, that's enough for today, and. Monday, we'll be going over the uh, results of the uh, exam, which I have not graded yet. I don't think I'll have them all graded by Monday, but I'll do as much as I can. But we'll go over the the, uh, the exam and how y'all did. And then on Wednesday, we'll talk about uh, conflicts of interest. So enjoy your weekend, and I'll see you on Monday.